This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast is sponsored by Brewskits, handcrafted dog treats made from spent beer grains, oats, barley, and rye. No chemical preservatives, a great source of fiber, and packed with protein. Visit brewskits.com to see the full selection of treats for your dog and your cat. Receive 15% off your first order by typing in two important words, Fermented Adventure, at checkout. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. So we're here. This is the West Overton Village Museum Distilling Rye Tasting Review. And we're going to talk about the expressions that are coming out of the distillery, which were just released, which I'm excited. I haven't tried these yet other than what we had at the rye tasting. I have Sam Komlenik here, and uh, Sam is the copy editor for um, Whiskey Advocate. Is that correct, Sam? That's correct. 15 years. And Alicia. <laughs> Alicia Monroe is the distiller, head distiller. She does everything at the distillery at Westover Distilling. Now, the whiskey panel that we had also included David Onerich, and David is considered to be the world's most uh, foremost authority on the cocktail. And Lou Bryson was there, and uh, he was the previous editor of the Whiskey Advocate. And these are names uh, in the industry that we uh, will recognize and have recognized. It was a great conversation so, Alicia and Sam, welcome to the podcast. Uh, what, Thank you very much. For you, you know, now that you thought about this, this was 10 days ago. This was November 5th. We had over, there were over 100 people in the room uh, hanging on just about every word, every question. After the event, Sam, for you, what what were your takes uh, from the event or what what resonated from you? I was really pleased with how the flow of the event proceeded um, we were able to stay on time and we were able to entertain almost every question that Alicia and I had uh, laid out earlier. Um, I, I think I think some of the I think what really stood out to me was some of the differences and similarities in the opinions of the panelists over the course of the evening. There were some things that they agreed on um, and there were some things that they didn't necessarily agree on and uh, and I think that really added a lot to the conversation. I neglected to mention that Steve Bayshore was also there and he is yes. the head distiller and miller at George Washington's Mount Vernon Distillery and I think from the group of people you're right but I think from the question Sam you would hope that not everybody would have the same answer or the same opinion. And exactly. that, which, that which led is, to lively discussion. 
which is exactly, which is what I think the audience looks for as well. They're looking for different perspectives on a theme. So I think we were able to deliver that. I think one of the things that really stood out, and I've spoken to a few people even after the event, was what really provoked a lot of discussion and a lot of conversation later was the question about Monongahela-style rye or what defines a Monongahela rye. And that seems to be, I mean, right on the bottle um, for West Overton Distilling for Alicia, it says Monongahela rye whiskey. So what is that for you? And just as part of the conversation, what does Monongahela rye whiskey, what is that defined as at least A, what's in the bottle or B, the brand and really what that should be recognized as? Well, David and I have both written on this subject, um, and we are in agreement on the fact that Monongahela rye would have had a mash bill somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% unmalted rye and 20% barley malt, or in the case of the all rye subset, it would be 80% uh, unmalted rye and 20% malted rye. Those are the two options for a rough estimate of a mash bill. Uh, Monongahela rye was always sweet mashed. There was no sour mash process involved. There was fresh yeast pitched every time. Um, it also involved in the industrial era, the use of the three chambered still, which is sort of a hybrid. And this is one of the other things that, that was discussed at the event, the three chamber still, uh, which is essentially three pot stills stacked on top of one another in which the mash drops down into each progressively lower chamber to be further uh, distilled and spends a lot more time in the distillation process. And then there's the heated aging, which we um, we don't have a, a, a three-chamber still at West Overton, and we're not able to fully heat the uh, aging process, but we're doing what we can. So I, I don't expect other distillers to necessarily have to um, uh, uh, stick to all four of those uh, parts of the definition of Monongahela rye, but I would like them to show respect to the term so that we can preserve this and, and keep it meaning something substantial in the future. I think a lot of those yeah. points that you made are really interesting because even in today's technology, when you talk about a three-chamber still, right? I mean, we know, and that came up in conversation, Leopold Brothers recreated that three-chamber still. Yes. Now, when we look at today's distillation, we're using co column stills, pot stills, uh, a variation of both of those. Where does the criteria today really fit with what that labeling should be? I guess that that was one of the things that followed through because we have a Monongahela style rye or Monongahela rye that's not distilled or distillers doing it, but they're not in the Monongahela Valley either. Um, that would seem to be pretty tough, wouldn't it? That's well, like calling it that's like calling it Maryland rye whiskey if you're distilling on the Pennsylvania side of the Mason Dixon line. No, but when you talked about, hey, you've got to, you know, it has to be this mash bill and these procedures, could a distillery still follow through on that branding if they're adhering to some of those points that you made about oh, the mash yeah, bill? I, I think so. I think so. Okay. I think you get into semantics there a little bit, but 
um, I think maybe to call it a Monongahela style rye, if you weren't making it in the Monongahela region would be fine. Um, but to be a true Monongahela, I, it kind of, it needs the terroir, at least in my opinion. I guess my question is for West Overton, would there be any plans down the road to build a three chamber still? That's ambitious. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, you know, we live, we live, we dream big, don't we? I mean, when you say ambitious, would you have imagined five, seven, 10 years ago, West Overton distilling spirits again? Well, I didn't even know that, Mount, that, that <laughs> West Overton was a place I could go five years ago. So, um, no. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, while we set the bar real high, maybe it's not that ambitious at all. Right. Sam, would you start to, to, well, to generate sure. the funding for yeah, that? I, I, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I would like to think that at some point in the future, and this might not be the near term, but at some point we might have the resources and the ability to tackle a project like that. Um, Vendome Copper and Brass already has experience in making the Leopold still, so they would also be able to uh, borrow from their experience building that first ever after um, after repeal still um, as making it easier to make one on our scale. Perhaps ours would be smaller than what Leopold Brothers have, but certainly, yeah, I, I I would love to see I would love to see us be able to adhere to all four of those basic parameters at some point in the future. It would be nice to have fully heated aging as well because the old industrial Pennsylvania rye distillers did not let their warehouses fall to less than about 70 degrees year round. That, that box is a lot easier to check. The, the heated aging, I, I would foresee um, probably in the next two, two to three years, realistically, that one's, that one's kind of easy. When you look at and where we were, and it was discussed during the dinner, where we were was a massive or more massive for the size and scale of production. So everything was encompassed. That also did help to keep things heated as well, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, they would be firing their uh, stills and all their machinery with a gigantic steam boiler that would have also kept those warehouses heated. Yeah, they would have had a huge steam plant. With what West Overton is doing as a living history museum, a living functioning history and a place for people to learn, where would you like to see the future? Or what would you like people's experiences to be over time when they think about West Overton, when they make plans to visit and when they go there? I, th I think that West Overton is a place where you can interact with history with all of your senses. I think that the most powerful experiences that we can deliver are ones where you can get your hands dirty. You can smell authentic parts of whether it be cooking or mashing um, to really understand the lived experiences of the people that settled there in the 1800s. Um, I don't foresee that it's a, a place where there's a lot of costumed characters and, and remaking of history, but I think the relaying of history through sensory experiences is, is something that everyone at West Overton really strives to move us towards. Sam, as a whiskey historian, do you have a perspective on really what you would like to have people experience there as well? 
Well, I, I would like to see, and this is, we are moving into this with our next set of exhibitry for next year, uh, but it's going to be more themed toward whiskey than it has been in the past. And that to me is really important because that was the major product that really propelled this family to fame and fortune. And uh, to have to have not really fully told that story in the past, I think, um, I think is being uh, doing a bit of a disservice to our visitors. So I'm looking forward to a more whiskey themed experience moving forward. Now, again, the event on November 5th, it was lively. There was a lot. It really provoked a lot of discussion. And it was almost like as the party was getting good, you know, when you're at a party and then mom and dad are coming home and the conversation reached this fever pitch. I think, again, attributing to what we talked about of what is a Monongahela rye. In regards to that, are there plans to do more events like this? Are there plans to do more where we bring people that are interested in discussing whiskey together for you after you reflect on the event for um, for what took place? I think that the success of the event and, and how much feedback we've heard over the last few days um, really speaks for itself. There's definitely an appetite for this sort of event. Everyone really enjoyed themselves. And as we were planning that, that was the hope. Um, when we caught it an evening with the experts, colon, PA Rye Whiskey, the, the thinking was that we could have this evening with the experts as an ongoing series. Um, we kind of spitballed one that would be focused solely on um, different names of, of regional specialties and terroir. So maybe a, a Maryland versus Empire Rye versus Monongahela Rye. Um, maybe we, we start right there in the good stuff and and go um go from there and see where those that line of questioning takes us um so i think you know this is part one i i don't have a general idea of, of when part two would be i don't know if it's annual or semi-annual but um it just it was so great and um everything really went right everything that could go right did go right so i think it it would be uh ridiculous not to expect another in this series and for a, an event that was the first out of the gate, I couldn't have been more pleased. Um, Alicia really put this whole thing together. Um, she coordinated the guests. She put together the panel. She uh, she took care of the, the catering. I mean, it was it, I, I couldn't have been happier with our first major whiskey event at Westover. I was just thrilled with that. And I was really I was really flattered to be a part of that panel. I think what you just talked about is is hugely exciting for the whiskey world, or even I would tell you that if you don't have a knowledge of whiskey, there was that level of introduction and there was enough in, and it's hard, right, Sam, because you don't want to get too in the weeds because the concern is you don't want to lose all of your audience, but you want to satisfy that. But I think as you look at creating a series, you'll really give this to those, and, and, and my pun would be, you know, wet people's appetite for more thirst of knowledge of whiskey. And I think you're onto something. I really, I really do. And West Overton, well, to benefit number one, give people the experience. And, you know, a lot of people I talk to don't necessarily know the history of West Overton and the significance of West Overton. And you really need to continue to bring that about. And I think that's part of the, uh, you know, what you're looking to accomplish with that kind of an event as well. 
I think um, to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, the, the major inspiration for the event was that I got this fire hose of information um, about distilling and about the category and all of these experts um, willing to share their knowledge with me. And I thought, how does the average consumer learn these things? You know, you can't just bend Sam's ear or you can't just decide to call up um, Herman Mahalich and, and ask him about how he makes rye. So what I wanted to do was have the opportunity to invite people in and give them this knowledge that was gifted to me through the process of becoming the distiller at West Overton and learning about rye as a category. And I think it's so fascinating that it couldn't help but be successful. So to be able to give everyone that opportunity that I've had um, over the past two years was really um, my inspiration for the event. I think that's really a wonderful, you said you're gifting. And, and I think that's a wonderful vision because, you know, you point out the idea and Alicia, we, we've had a little bit of time to talk and, you know, we, we, we briefly spoke at the um, event at George Washington's, uh, the, the Keystone Rose and Rye Distillation, and even that was overwhelming. But you're right, there's, there's, a, there's so much information, even where you are, and so much history, even where you are, that as you start to fill that in, I, I find you get a, 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 even more of an appreciation for whiskey. And, you know, Sam, I mean, for you, being where you have been in, in, in the whiskey world, there has to be some even connection for you when you understand the history of that distillery, the people that made it, the places that it's gone. It, it heightens the value of, of just what you're drinking and what you're enjoying. It sends chills down my spine every time I walk the same floors that were walked by the likes of Abraham Overholt and Henry Clay Frick. It is hard for me to comprehend that I now have a bit of a bit of say over what happens at that location, which to me as a whiskey guy is really reverential. Do you for Alicia and you, Sam, do you recognize or does it you talked about, hey, I'm here and I'm walking in the footsteps. But do you recognize where you are and that place in history for each other? Uh, I I definitely refer to it as hallowed ground, um, and and you can really feel it. I'm not a, a very like spiritual or uh, religious person, but when you're there, you can't help but feel the presence of the past. And I I, I that's not even nearly an apt description for what it feels like to be working there. Um, I like to walk around inside of the building where the event was held and look up at the rafters. And it really tells a story of work and machinery that's not there anymore. You kind of see uh, the, the tells of what happened in that space. And I, I try to imagine it. And I, we don't really know exactly where everything was or how it, it was set up or how it operated. Uh, most of that has been lost to time, but you feel it that you just, it's a, it's a feeling. That's ominous. I, I just, I chills up and down the back of my neck, just hearing that. And Sam, do you get that same, you know, feeling and do you recognize a place in history for you being a part of that as well? How can you not feel that way um, when you're in that space? 
and looking at those magnificent buildings, and they are magnificent buildings, and they meant something to that area in the past when it was an industrial facility, and it means something to that area now as a historic and interpretive facility. Um, and we are lucky enough to have a little still that we're making a little bit of rye whiskey the way that in in many ways, the same way that Abraham Overholt would have stirred that mash by hand. You know, we we use a paddle when Alicia and I are working there. We're we're cooking this as though we're cooking something in a kitchen. This is not for us an industrial process now because it's so small scale, but it really is more an artisan process. And it's it's it, it blows my mind. It blows my mind. And I received a uh, message from Eric Wolf today out at Stolen Wolf, and I need to return his call. But he said, for you guys to be making rye whiskey of that caliber out of the gate like that, it just it, it he's impressed with it. And I'm grateful for that recognition as well. That is a high that's high praise. And that's a and wonderful. That's on Alicia. That's on Alicia. This is her baby. Oh, your palate has been instrumental. I, I never do a finishing day without Sam. Because I, I need someone who knows what it's supposed to taste like. And I, I've done maybe one finishing day. And it's still um, because of Sam, because he brought me a crate of white whiskey. So, Sam, when you weren't there, and I don't know if I ever told you this, um, I picked my favorite three whites out of that crate of white whiskey that you brought and I lined them up. And as I was tasting through my cuts, I would use them as reference. So almost like um, comparing paint swatches, but by taste. So mm -hmm. even though you aren't there, I'm still using a tool that, that you gave to me to try to determine if, if what I'm tasting is what I think I'm tasting. Yeah. Well, right. that's the perfect segue. So West Overton now has three bottles or three expressions you're now selling, right? Open yeah. to the public. So there's the Jasper's stash. Now you also have the white rye and you have the Monongahela rye whiskey, and that's the one that is aged, correct? So correct. if we were to if if we were to come to the distillery and you were to take us through the tasting, what would you start us with and where would we go? I like to start with the white. Um, and we are not open all the time, um, but we will be open through December. Um, I believe it's every weekend in December, Saturday and Sunday. Um, so I like to start with the white because you get to taste what is from the grain in the white whiskey. People um, that are not whiskey aficionados don't realize that the color and the sugar and the caramels come from the wood. So we'll start before the wood has its influence um, with the white, and you can really taste the sweetness of the grain that comes through um, in that white. I will tell you, it took a lot for me not to open these bottles until today. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is your first taste. No, I waited. I just wanted to do this because, you know, again, you both are the, you know, you're the guides. And I, and I, and I didn't want to do this until you kind of said, all right, this is where to start. This is what to do. So I'm certainly grateful for that, but it took a lot of willpower not to open these bottles. <laughs> even, even on the nose, there's so much floral to this. It's, it's just a wonderful, clean nose. And talk about, and I guess maybe you answered that a little bit earlier. 
but talk about where you came in on the proof and and why you why you picked this is 49% uh ABV and 98 proof, right? It is. So so talk about what went into the mind for doing it at that point and and the goal there. I think most of the whites that I've tried have been right around 100. Um we we generally will try about I don't know, four to six different proofs on anything um, before we bottle it. And, you know, it was nice there. It, it still has a sufficient amount of heat, but I don't think it chokes you up a lot. I think a little bit more and, and you kind of lose some of the grassiness in the fire. Um, and, it, and it keeps that kind of herbal herbaceousness um, without watering it down too much. So I, I really liked the, the 98 on that one. I would say that as you start to sip through this and as the palate kind of get used to it and, and what you said about the, the herbaceousness, the herbalness, the, the grassiness, the grains that are there, there's almost like a tingling and, and it's not like a, a cinnamon sensation. It's almost like a spearmint, a little bit of a mint sensation on the back of the palate that just lingers there. I hear um, that a lot. I, that, that's a tasting note that I don't find. I, I don't know. Um, but I don't find mint in, in anything. I know there was a, uh, a new riff that's supposed to have a significant amount of, of mint to it. I, I don't taste it. All right. And that's why everybody's palate's different. You know, I, I, and, and Sam, you would tell, I mean, from a standpoint, you know, a lot of that is either peppery notes or, you know, more of a baking spice note. I mean, there's the ethanol there, but that could sequence and cycle through in different ways for different people, right? Absolutely. And it, it depends on I, I've always said that a bottle of whiskey can taste 10 different ways, depending on your mood, the time of day, uh, what your palate's been through prior to that, the temperature of that bottle at the given time. You know, it's there are variables even during a simple tasting um, and everybody's palate's different. Like like Alicia says, she can't pick up that mint, but I, I generally do. Um, I, I, I tend to find a little bit of menthol in there too, as well. Um, and that might be a mint, uh, offshoot, but yeah, everybody's palate's different. One of my favorite, um, it, one of my favorite ex experiences right now is that initial, there's an initial sweetness of almost like a, a toasted marshmallow on the, on the palate. And, and that's just a wonderful, this is delicious. And I've mentioned that as well, that I've, I've picked up that toasted marshmallow there as well. The feeling about this white rye whiskey and what you said is, look, this is the introduction. You should know the juice that is going into the barrel and you can experience the nuances of why this is going to, as we go to the next one, why this is going to make a phenomenal whiskey. Because you start with a phenomenal white rye and this is this is true all right eric stole my thunder but you know this is this is your first bottling right this is what you've been working hard for the last couple of years to make it's our very first 30 gallon barrel that we ever made this is the first whiskey that was ever made here in the last hundred years and alicia for you where do you find that sense of satisfaction or where you the, the recognition how does that feel for you um so it's it's more akin to disbelief than it, it is to satisfaction. <laughs> you know, for for quite a few months, I thought everyone was just being really kind. Um, but as 
people started to talk about it that don't know me and have no reason to be kind to me. Not that people don't generally err on kindness, but it's just to the point now where people have been so praising it so much that I believe it now. Um, and I, I honestly, I, I wonder at times if it's just like beginner's luck um, or if it's that I worry a lot. So I think those first cuts were really tight. Um, I think that I probably could have took a little bit more, I think in a, in a commercial sense, if we were trying to squeeze every drop that we could into a bottle to get our return on investment, like so many starving distilleries are during their first, you know, two to three years when you don't have very much product to sell and you're trying to keep the lights on. I think that you don't have as much latitude to throw away as we did. So I think that having the freedom to say, no, I, I only want this much of the heart's cut and the rest of it um, is going to go back into a finishing run later. I think the ability to do that um, made for a better product. So I uh, would I say that it's more and it's a tribute to you. It's a tribute to you of just your mindset. And I think that there are people around you that have helped you grow and to do this and it's nice to have been able to lean into them. And I, I think from a standpoint of what I've heard, even, even in our previous conversations, there's that old question, what would you do if you couldn't fail? And the real question here is you did what you did because you weren't going to fail because there was never a mindset of that. And that's why you created a great whiskey here. I, I am, um, I'm fail adverse. I, I don't like to fail. I don't like anybody around me to fail, um, which tends to make me over-function. But if over-functioning made this liquid that so, so many people have been so positive about, I'll take it. If we're... Um, uh, go ahead, well, Sam. She wanted, she won't admit to this uh, to you, so I'll tell you that when she took that aged Monongahela down to... Uh, Mount Vernon the Sunday after the event and shared it with uh, Lisa Roper Wicker of Widow Jane. Uh, Lisa offered Alicia a job on the spot. I That's can't huge. up on it. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't, but if I, I told her, I said, if I was unattached, I would come live under a bridge to work for you. Like I, oh. I, I would just, I would get on a bus tomorrow, but I, I have a family here and in, in deep roots here and I, I'll be here for a while longer, but that was, um, that was humbling. That's huge. That really is. I'm glad you shared that. Thank you for that. If we're there and we're tasting, what should we move to next? So we'll move right to the Monongahela. So okay. your palate's nice and opened up now with that 98 proof. So you can generally, I, I, I like to start with the white because I always feel like when I, I have something after, you know, not having straight alcohol in, in quite some time, my tongue needs to wake up. So now we're nice and awake and um, we can move into the aged and I'll, I'll let you tell me what you think of it. Well, talk about, all right, so this one is 48% alcohol by volume. It's 96 proof. You came down too. Is that any direction just as where you felt that was the good proof number? 
It's what tasted right. So in, in everything that we've done, there have been no arbitrary numbers. It's when it, it looks and tastes and feels right. Um, and you would think that that would lead to not a lot of continuity, but on the last um, stripping and finishing runs that we had, we've added everything from our two different mash series separately. And they both came out to be exactly 138 proof. So although we're not strict by the numbers, um, the, the taste that we're cutting at is uniform. Um, and I think that, that it'll stay that way as long as we're operating and using the same kind of palette to make our cuts. So this one, um, it keeps that grassiness, you know, you, you can still taste the, the spirit of the grain. Um, and then pick up some sweetness from the barrel to go along with the sweetness of the rye. There is such, even when you open the bottle, there's such a sweetness that escapes on the, no, even the bottle. I just, it's like wonderful to almost feel this area that I'm at. There's a little bit, as, you, as this opens up, I get, I get the barrel notes of this. So talk a little bit about the aging process that, that you've gone through. So we've chosen to use 30 gallon barrels. Um, we had made a decision to not go with wood that had been field dried for a long period of time. Uh, I know a lot of people are choosing staves that have been in the yard for three years, six years. I think I've even seen like 20 years. Um, this wood was only in the field for six months. So we decided to have a, a medium toast to try to open up some of those wood sugars um, in a quicker way. Um, and we did a level three char on a 30 gallon barrel. Um, we were told by some of our friends at Liberty Pole that if we were to use a higher char on that smaller barrel, um, you run the risk of it tasting acrid. Um, it doesn't always happen, but we I didn't want it to be um, a risk that we would take. Uh, and I didn't feel like the Overholtz probably had yards of wood sitting around. You know, they, they were pretty efficient people. I don't have any historical precedent to point to, but it just didn't make any sense to me that they would let barrel wood sit in the yard for years. Um, they're continually growing, they're reinvesting, they're, they're making a lot of product. So the short-term... Um, the short age of the wood wasn't really concerning. And, and I think it, it aged out beautifully. I, I don't think that we're missing anything with that being young wood. What you said and what you talked about, I don't want to miss because where you are, we talked earlier about, you know, kind of walking in the footsteps of those that have come before you to distill this and produce it and to get to the bottle, taking the mindset of those that might have been there at the time. I don't want to lose that because I think that's what now incorporates to what you're producing now. Yeah. The, the other decision that was made in that vein was the 30 gallon barrel. So I read a lot and I, I've read a lot of opinion pieces that really, um, you know, they're not kind to folks that are using smaller barrels. I've, I've read opinions that you're, you're not really making whiskey unless you're putting it in a 53-gallon barrel. But for the Overholtz, um, we ex estimate that their cask size was probably around 40 gallons. So when we 
went with the 30 gallon. Of course, it, it helped us get whiskey to the bottle quicker, but it wasn't this slap in the face of tradition that I think a lot of people might think that it is. I think as well, Sam, yes. Sam would answer that as the traditional or purist in, in, in the whiskey world, right? Yes, absolutely. And I really have had, I really kind of take issue with distillers who are still using one, three, five gallon barrels. They, I don't think there's really any need for it um, unless you're looking for a particular style that you can only get from that um, quick force of wood into whiskey. But uh, once you get to a 30 gallon barrel, I believe that barrel really starts to mimic a 53 much more than say a, a, a five or a 10. What I get on this, there's such a wonderful viscosity to this. It's almost like if I put a, a hard candy in my mouth and just let yes. it melt mm. on my mouth. I've not ever had that experience with it. me personally. I've not had that experience with the whiskey, the way I'm having with this. And there are those sweet notes you know, caramel notes, even some butterscotch on that. Uh, yeah. But but it melts out into that peppery rye finish that you want to have. And the herbaceousness, the grain is there. This is just, you know, what I, you know, the hard part is, and we had, again, we had David Wondrich there. And for him as a cocktail aficionado to say, what would we, what would he make as a cocktail with these? But to me, these are just, you, you, you don't, you know, those that want to put a little drop of water in there to open this up a little bit, an ice cube. I don't know what you'd make as a cocktail, maybe a little old fashioned or Manhattan. I don't know. What would you do with this? I would think it would have to be a very whiskey forward cocktail like that. Something simple, two, three ingredient cocktail. Um, let the whiskey shine and don't don't frou-frou it up too much. Frou-frou it up. Okay. That's yeah. going to be the, that's going to be the topic. The, that's the, a technical the, term. That's the <laughs> title of the podcast. Don't frou-frou it up. <laughs> what I also, as again, this is, we, we could sit here and just enjoy this, drink this a little bit. There's still a little smokiness that comes out of this as well. There, there really is. And that kind of surprised me. Alicia, could you speak to that? So the, the funny thing for me is that the smokiness on the Jaspers is, is so prominent that I, I kind of lose it a little bit in this one. I, I did have somebody I was tasting with, I think it was um, Aaron Hyduk, and he was talking about almost a little bit of maltiness or a little bit of peatiness, maybe it was that he said. I, I don't get that personally, but I know that some people do. Well, you said Jasper, so I opened up and poured the Jasper next. Now, this is a collaboration with Dad's Hat Distillery and Westover Distillery. And I would say for the label, I kept looking at it because I know you can talk about the Jasper and the, the head there. But even still, I love the label with, with, with the hat, with Dad's hat. And just <laughs> it, it was like, how fortuitous is that? <laughs> right. Uh, so many good design elements coming together. So Jasper is, uh, that is a cartoon of our most beloved artifact. Jasper is a two-headed uh, calf that was stillborn and donated to the museum over a hundred years ago. Um, he was taken off display for some time and there was public outcry um, when people came back to the museum and, and couldn't find him. So he was um, he goes to the taxidermist every year now to get treated, to make sure that he stays uh, beautiful. And we thought, 
Um, Herman is always somebody, Herman from dad's hat that reminds me to keep whiskey light, keep it fun. Um, this is a, a recreational substance and, and we should not be, we should not take ourselves too seriously. So putting his hat on Jasper, I think was a great homage to his ethos of whiskey. Um, I'm blessed to have a art director for a husband. So he um, drew that up for me and put the hat on and it just came together so nicely. Truly, um, truly, you know, you couldn't ask for a better bottle, you know, that that, that is awesome. I love it. And, and he, he also, her husband also designed our other two labels with which I was just amazed at the quality of that package and how classy the, uh, the, the bottle looks just standing there staring at you. I do. And we talked about it. So now not only, you know, it's, it's conversation with the distiller, it's being at Westover to now the number of times we've been there. And now there's the connection. It really tells the story. And I, I think that's really, if you look at a bottle in this, in this vein, this really needs to tell the story. Like I would say like the overture of if you're watching a, a, a Broadway musical or a movie that the bottle itself should give you some indication or give you a feeling of where you're going, where this is going to take you. Right. And the, the impetus for acquiring that barrel um, from dad's hat was, you know, pre COVID we had expected our tasting room to be ready to open and our barrels just freshly laid down would not have been ready. So people would come to us and, and all we would have, is white spirit. So I know a lot of places source at that point. And we thought, well, um, we should source from someone who's doing right by the Monongahela style and that fit the bill. But then when COVID happened and we couldn't open the tasting room, um, that whiskey served an entirely different purpose that I didn't even anticipate. And that was to be our training wheels for proofing and filtering and bottling. And I was so grateful to have it because our whiskey was so hard earned that I didn't want to make any mistakes on it. And luckily the, the Jasper stash came out beautifully as well. Um, but it kind of took a little bit of the weight off when it came time to bottle our product, because I knew everything would work. I had already tested everything. Um, I had already done uh, a blending, you know, and so it was kind of our training wheels. Um, but I really like the way it turned out. What you touched on is, you know, that vision of, hey, we have this and it gives you that direction. Right. But what's really nice is that we can say that both are both of these are made in that Monongahela style. Correct. Yes, absolutely. So when you go to the distillery and you try the rye whiskey that's been barreled and you can try it next to the Jasper stash, which is distilled from dad's hat, you still get two different tasting profiles from the, I mean, this is this to me, you know, this is dad's hat. This is such a wonderful expression of what they do and why they're so well-known and why I, you know, I, I enjoy drinking their whiskey but for this, there, there, you, you get so many different tasting notes here. 
There's there's more. I, I get more of the um, the stone fruit on here. Um, there's there's a little bit of a, a, a more of an oakiness or more of a wooden presentation. You know that 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 wooden at the end spiciness to it. So it's nice to be able to say, hey, this is this is one expression and this is the other. But this is the style by which we're all distilling at to give people even more of an education as to what's happening with what you're doing. Right. Um, I get a lot of the smokiness in the dad's hat. Um, the barrel was really prominent in it. Um, and we did proof it lower. Um, it's again, it's where it tasted good, but I'm glad on the other side of it that we have something in the eighties because not everybody wants, you know, a, a 90 proof spirit. So I think we have a nice range between the two of them. Um, and you know that we might've got a little greedy on the proof. Um, you know, that was only a 15 gallon barrel and wanted to get a significant amount of bottles. So we said, you know, how, how low can we go in this still taste pretty good. And I, I think we did a good job on it. Where can people find these bottles now that they're available and how do they get them? At West Overton. So the entire point of whiskey at West Overton is to draw people to the site so that we can sing uh, the, I guess, historical reverence for the Overholt family and this whiskey history that not everybody knows. So um, throughout December, um, I want to say most weekends, I'm not sure if we're going to be open Christmas weekend, but I would check westovertonvillage.org. Um, for our regular museum hours and the tasting room hours will align with when the museum is open. So we're closed right now to reset for our holiday tour um, and all tours should be geared, um, you know, around a Victorian holiday Christmas and the different ages that followed and the distillery will be open during that time um, selling spirits as well. I would tell people, first of all, if there, for any other reason, to go and find your way to pick these up because you're not shipping them. They're not going to be allocated to any liquor stores or anything else. These are one of those, you know what? And I, and I love that because I think what that does to, I don't want to become controversial, but to the whiskey groups, they're not going to be able to find that special bottle, you know, that is being held by that one liquor store. They have right. to come and see you right. and that's worth the trip. And then what they're going to find is, they're going to learn more or they may get an introduction to ideas about whiskey that they never knew about. And that's going to only, you know, that's only going to heighten and improve the industry and the uh, just the people that drink it, the people that enjoy it. We, we run a, we run a really small still in a really small operation. Um, we don't make enough of this to have it on hand all the time. This is a truly handmade product. Um, we only sell it in the 375 milliliter version or minis. We actually have minis available um, as well. But it, it's this is about as limited production of whiskey as exists. In a legal form, at least. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as people look forward to, as Alicia, how often are you distilling? You know, what's the schedule like for you right now? So originally we had kind of a spring session and a fall session. I can tell you we skipped the fall session in order to get our bottling done and everything ready for the event. So right now we have two more 30 gallons laid down that will probably be ready in the spring. And we laid down a 53 gallon barrel 
that's going to stay in the barrel for four years. So we hope to distill again in the spring and um, make as much as we can. And hopefully everything goes well and um, we can have two more barrels laid down by June. So, you know, it's, it's always going to be limited. Um, we have to run the still conservatively probably nine to 12 times to get one 30 gallon barrel. <laughs> so we'll, uh, we'll keep, keep trucking along. Um, but going forward, I, I would anticipate that if the museum is open, the distillery um, is probably open as well, at least on the weekends. I would anticipate that we will continue to have the uh, white whiskey available because that's much easier to produce. There's no time involved there. It's just a matter of more precise cuts. Um, and we really haven't talked about Jasper's batch, but I don't see why we wouldn't want to continue that if um, Herman Mahalich continues to uh, be kind enough to offer us whiskey from his distillery. Yeah, so we might not always have our aged product, but I, I would like to think we will always have the white rye available and maybe some Jaspers. Sure. And I, I think that for the Jasper or, or maybe a separate label, Sam and I have talked about um, how fun it would be to acquire a few different Pennsylvania distillers, rye barrels, and maybe come up with our own blend. Um, blending is, um, you know, kind of uncharted territory for me. It's, it's, it's like mystical because I, I've not been there when anyone did it. I don't understand how some people are really good at it and some people um, aren't as good at it. So if we get to a point where everything else is predictable and moving along like clockwork, I think um, blending a Pennsylvania rye from all of our favorite distillers would be something that would be fun to do. Well, I would also throw that out that I think it would be uh, at least lobbying for something. I think it would be wonderful and appropriate to see you guys distill some rose and rye as well, because my guess is that probably maybe have made it to uh, Old Overholt uh, probably at one time. Well, rose and rye wasn't introduced into the United States until the very early 1900s. So it's not really a heritage grain as we traditionally think of heritage grains going back, you know, in, into the very early days of agriculture, but it was a significant, um, it was a significant step forward in the productivity of, of rye grain. So I doubt that Rosen probably ever really made it to Abraham's distillery, but certainly may have been used at Broadford um, moving forward. So it's in that regard, it is sort of a heritage grain, but it's not a real old grain. You know, it came from Russia in the uh, early 1900s. So. And that brings up an interesting um, point that I talked through with our director of education, Aaron Hollis. Um, you know, there's over a hundred years of distilling history at West Overton. So when we talk about making a historical product, their processes and locations and, and who's at the helm changes significantly from the 1800s through the late 1800s and then into um, the more modern Broadford distillery. So, you know, what era are we targeting? So when, you know, not that I don't care about the Broadford days, but when I'm trying to evoke 
um, a point in history to reference, I'm, I'm always thinking about Abraham. Like I, I'm always trying to align with something that was happening during his lifetime in, in the prime of his distillation history. So that's, that's the period that's important to me. Well, I'm excited for what is going to happen moving forward. I will make sure that I'll be living in this world so I can try that four year <laughs> in the 53 gallon. <laughs> um, what other, is there anything that we didn't talk about on the podcast tonight that you want, would like to have people know about? I, I would say that, you know, uh, Sam and I have been um, in this whiskey trench together, um, but it wouldn't be possible for us to be there without all of the other folks that work at or support West Overton. Um, you know, it's a very collaborative culture there. We all are rowing in the same direction. And while I might be at the still and Sam might be there helping me taste through, um, you know, our director of education is, is instrumental and the, the people that pay the bills are instrumental and the, the maintenance that comes in and helps me clean up mash whenever I'm at the end of a 13 hour day and, and don't think I have another, um, another clean in me. Um, you know, just the people that come and talk to you and get you through your day and actually care about you. Um, so I think, you know, I, I'm a humble person and, and I love to be on this podcast, but if I could bring the other six members of our staff with me, um, without them, I, I couldn't have done this. So I'm, I'm thankful to them. And from my perspective, I would say that um, I know that we're working diligently with some of our partners to improve the overall visitor experience at West Overton. And that's only going to be getting better from here on out. And I'm really hoping for big things at this site within the next five to 10 years. Um, so we will see how that progresses. But in the meantime, stop by, see our tiny little Abraham-esque distillery, um, uh, pick up a bottle of, you know, everybody wants Pappy, 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 and Pappy's great whiskey, but it's by far not the rarest. And ours is kind of creeping into that ultra rare territory. So stop by. I would love to see you. So when you talk about rare, how many bottles of this exist right now out of that barrel that you just uh, bottled? Less than 200. So less than 200. And I'm sure that over half of that have already been sold or accounted for, right? Mm, I just did inventory, so I should know this. I, I want to say there's a about 115 to 130 left. Okay. So what you're saying is, Alicia, that if you want a very rare bottle of not only history, phenomenal tasting whiskey, this is where you want to go right now. You have to buy two because you're going to want to taste the white, it. The white rye. And then yeah. and then obviously, look, just pick up the whole set. Pick up the jazz. I'm glad I did. And I am so glad that I waited for this to do with you together because of that experience. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw that out there. If anybody wants to have the tasting experience with Sam and Alicia, you'll throw yourself out there. You'll always be there together. You can have the tasting <laughs> experience with you guys because that's all you're going to do from now on. Just distill and make <laughs> and, 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 and share your knowledge of things. I am so excited. I'm, I'm grateful that through... Dawn and for myself, our fermented adventure, 
that we've gotten a chance to meet you and just experience what you share with the world. And, you know, Alicia, you talked about it, 13 hours. Thank you so much for working 13, 14 hour days. You know, Sam, thanks to you for being part of, you know, where you're guiding this and your experience to help bring this to the public. Because, you know, like you said, without the other six people or seven people or 10 people and all the people involved, this would have been a lost experience. And how many times do people start something and they don't get it done? You guys are getting it done and we're better for it. So thank you. Let me thank you for this opportunity. Um, Your enthusiasm for what it is we do has been pretty important as well. And for us to be able to talk about this with your audience um, really, really casts our net a bit wider. So thank you. Well, thank you, guys. And uh, I'm going to have some more of this uh, whiskey and uh, try to then go edit the podcast and release it. Okay. Wonderful. Happy holidays, everybody. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Brewskits. Beer, grain, dog, bones. Brewskits. Your dog will go wild. Brewskits. Beer, grain, dog, bones, a healthy alternative for your pup. Brewskits are all natural and made in the USA. Visit brewskit.com. That's B-R-E-W-S-C-U-I-T dot com.